FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Vanita Dahia, who's an integrative medicine clinical consultant, pharmacist, naturopath and clinical nutritionist. She's a board-certified fellow in anti-aging and regenerative medicine, providing clinical training programs and educational initiatives to doctors and allied health practitioners, a functional pathology clinical consultant, health services manager and international speaker. Vanita is a medical authority and extraordinary mentor for her peers and patients alike. She's more than 30 years experience in compounding pharmacy, functional pathology, herbal, Ayurvedic and integrative medicine. Vanita received her training in anti-aging medicine through association and membership with the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, that's A4M and A5M. Vanita is also the author of Alchemy of the Mind and Alchemy of Amino Acids, and it's the amino acid part we'll be discussing today. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Vanita. How are you? Thank you very much, Andrew. Very well, thank you. So, look, I guess we need to go back for a review. Let's call it a review. It might seem oversimplistic, but amino acids, what are they? Amino acids are as we both as we all know, are the building blocks of protein. And protein like carbs and fats are part of our diet. Now the word protein is actually derived from a Greek word called meaning first, protos, meaning first, which is really designated prominence in life. Amino acids um, are as we said, building blocks, they're components of a growth hormone. They're building blocks of genetics. They building blocks of um, they involve in every metabolic pathway in the body. They manufacture hormones mm. and neurotransmitters. They work synergistically with vitamins and minerals and trace elements to maintain the physiology. So amino acids, in essence, is as important as minerals for the sustenance of life. They work in a flow. They're constantly changing moment by moment by shifting the flow of your metabolic pathways in response to a whole bunch of physiological signals. So they're essential to life. And indeed, enzymes are made up of amino acids. So there's this critical component of how things move, how things function in the body as well, isn't it? That is correct. Even our genetics, when you're looking at our gene markers, they are in actual fact associated with amino acids. <laughs> so they play a vital role. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so now the next step, I guess, is classification. Now, this is something that bamboozles me a little bit. This, it's like there's not one simple classification. There's many different forms of classification. Can we go through a few of those? Sure. Because amino acids are essential to our life, look, we know that they're part of our DNA. You know, we have 
the strands of DNA are consisting of adenosine and cytosine and guanine and thymine. And these bases make up what we call our genes. You know, our ancestral DNA is made up of these amino acids. Now, when we classify these amino acids, they can be classified predominantly on the basis of where they found in the in the system. Like, are they needed by the body? Can we get them only from the diet? So amino acids that are derived from the diet and the body cannot make are called essential amino acids. And examples of that might be histidine, isoleucine, valine, methionine, phenylalanine. But then you can also get ones that are non-essential. These are actually made by the body. You don't need them from the diet, like serine and proline. And then if the body's under a lot of stress or there's a trauma or there's infections, etc., then the body cannot make certain amino acids. They need to then be derived from the diet. And these are conditionally essential amino acids, such as glutamate, taurine, arginine. Now, that's based on where they come from in the diet. But they might also come from... Um, they might have properties that are associated with their um, ability to be charged or they might be polar, they may be basic, they may be acidic um, uh, amino acids or they might be alcoholic amino acids. Yeah. For example, serine and threonine are alcoholic. Polar amino acids are aspartic acid and glycine. Then on the other hand, you can also have the classification based on its content because amino acids are really an amino group and a, around a carbon group and a whole bunch of peptides. And the length of those peptides will give us an indication of what amino acid we're talking about. So the amino acids might be sulfur-containing. For example, in the cyanine, um, they could be acid or they could be basic. Basic amino acids are like lysine and arginine. Then they can be also classified in accordance with action. So you might have amino acids that might be glucogenic or ketogenic because these are metabolized to acetyl-CoA and acetoacetate through your Krebs cycle and citric acid cycle. So So there's a number of ways that one can classify and it's important to, to actually understand the classification to be able to possibly glean the therapeutic function of these amino acids. One thing that I found interesting about your book was that there's now a a movement to really push for uh, the conditionally essential status, if you like, or acceptance as a conditionally essential amino acid with the um, taurine in stress situations like trauma, burns, that sort of thing. Is that right? That is correct. Some of the conditionally essential amino acids are being, actually all the study of amino acids has expanded so much that we are now um, are able to identify amazing therapeutic functions, as you said, taurine for specific conditions. Taurine is also being marketed quite heavily in the area of cardiovascular health as right. well. Yeah. So when we're um, combining amino acids, so so important to compare and to understand and differentiate between amino acids found in these big bulking powders for weight loss or weight management or bodybuilding or muscle building versus the amino acids that are used therapeutically. Yeah. Indeed, I remember even decades ago, this was, um, one uh, particular baby formula was marketing their inclusion of taurine for infants. 
and they were one of the few at that stage. I think it's quite commonplace now. So it's just interesting to see the movement. That's true. That's true. And it's also interesting to note that, for example, each amino acids are derived from a number of sources. They could come from soy or whey or uh, fermented brown rice or hemp, or they may be derived from casein. It was really interesting. I had um, a patient once who had um, epileptic seizures that were not associated with, uh, or seizures not uh, not associated with epilepsy. Mm. And following her neurotransmission pathways, we discovered that her glutamate levels were so high. So we managed to remove the glutamate toxic foods um, based on some of the work that Amy Yasko has done. Yeah. They're neuroprovoking glutamate toxic foods. And our foods are so heavily laced with glutamate toxicity. And so um, this, this patient was able to alleviate a lot of her uh, episodes of seizures. Wow. But then subsequent to that, this patient got went ahead and found, okay, right, she's ready to hit the gym and started taking a protein powder oh, okay. and the seizures returned. Right. That's when I decided, well, I've got to now go and have a look at how the amino acids compare from one source to, the, to another. And I found that in comparison to pea and versus whey and soy and other, a few other sources, I found that the pea protein had the lowest level of glutamine or glutamate mm. uh, in comparison to all the others. So when you're using a protein source that is already made, one needs to actually identify that and then use it. It's particularly from a therapeutic perspective, use it with caution. Yeah. Just as an aside on that, Amy Yasko's quite well known for, you know, methylation issues, looking at genomic pathways, that sort of thing. Do you find that in these patients that um, assessing the genomic profile in these patients helps you with a nutritional um, prescription? Absolutely. Absolutely. Methylation cannot function without specific amino acids. Yeah. Methionine is needed as a precursor for SAMe. Serine is needed for the folate pathway. Cysteine, cystathione, all the sulfation pathways for the CBS pathway. We need the amino acids. And they don't work independently of each other. They work with vitamins and minerals, specific vitamins and minerals, to ensure that the whole methylation pathway works. So each... Every physiological function, amino acids are used very, very effectively. One other classification we haven't gone into yet, and that's the L and the D forms. And indeed, sometimes you'll see in supplements the, what's called the racemic mix, you know, the LD or the DL, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, can you comment on that? Obviously, the L form is the more natural in this case. Is that right? Yes. L form is actually the naturally occurring um, form of amino acids. These are basically isomers of a particular in the way they rotate in the body, okay? So you will find your DNA strand is actually a rotational strand. They are rotating around each other. And the, the idea behind these isomers that every time an amino acid is occurs, generally most amino acids occur in both the isometric forms, both the dextrorotatory, which is deformed, and the levorotatory, which is the anti-clockwise um, uh, rotation, which is the L form of the amino acid. The only exception to those isomeric, isomeric forms is glycine. Glycine only occurs in its L form. 
Now, and that's probably because of the possibility of the two different forms or stereoisomers around that central carbon atom. So the deconfiguration is often formed by fermentation, usually formed by bacteria or it's formed synthetically. So an example of a D form would be D serine. That this is, these are amino acids that are actually racemized or rearranged to form an L configuration. Um, the work done by Dr. Walsh uh, in a um, journal called um, Archives of Physiological Medicine Rehab, mm. um, his work on DL phenylalanine. So this is a D and L isomer of yep. phenylalanine. Yeah. Yeah. So that particular, he's found that um, something like D-L-phenylalanine has an amazing analgesic effect, whereas L-phenylalanine, we know L-phenylalanine is a precursor to dopamine as yep. well as phenylethylamine. These are our neurotransmitters of catecholamines. But D-L-phenylalanine has the analgesic effect due to its stimulation or actually enzymatic degradation of the endorphins and enkephalins. So that's the reason why D-L-phenylalanine is used for pain management. Yeah. He found that 250 milligrams of D-L-phenylalanine, uh, uh, taken four times a day, uh, increased the pain response rate um, from 32 to 75%. So that's quite significant. I, I wouldn't say that that would be a first line, but be a great adjunctive um, support for pain management, particularly today when there is a crisis yes. situation with pain management and codeine restrictions and so forth. Yeah, and that, like particularly in Australia, we've seen codeine taken off the market since what was it, February 2018? That's correct. Yeah, yes, it's good to know the options available. Well, that's right, because they're now also uh, seeing a potential um, gabapentin abuse. It's just the yes. next step along. It's like, yes. what do we got now? So, as well as the oxycodone abuse mm. as well. So there's there's a next level, but it's it's not only affecting us in Australia; it's affecting the US as well. So oh, yeah. uh, it seems to be uh, we need to consider and look at all the options available. And this is a great natural option. The only issue I had clinically with using DLPA was the, the motivation of the patient to take it regularly throughout the day because it has a quick half-life. So that is, you, you yes. just had to really make sure that they were taking it quite regularly throughout the day, but very useful as an adjunct. I mean, it can be used as an adjunct with um, some amazing herbs. There's some amazing herbs that we now found uh, that have amazing analgesic effects, and together with our spices, your ginger, turmeric, and so forth as well. So one has to consider the options available. What about a potential toxicity, though, with the D form? I remember years ago there was this potential, and I would say not common because there was the DL um, methionine was ubiquitous on the market then, but there was this rare issue of a toxicity with the D form of methionine. Is that right? Um, all amino acids, very importantly, all amino acids, when used in therapeutic doses, are really therapeutically beneficial. When used inappropriately 
And if there may be a genetic uh, predisposition, the patient mm. may have phenylketonuria, for example, that is con- phenylalanine would be contraindicated, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what we need to be aware of is because of the fact that each of these medicaments, which we call amino acids, they have their own materia medica. They have their therapeutic action, their dosage, contraindication, side effect. And this is what is detailed in Alchemy of Amino Acids book. So it's really important to be aware that when we use amino acids therapeutically, there are side effects, there are contraindications. Most 90% of the time, they are safe. Now, in relation to answering your question regarding the D form versus the L form, there's a significant amount of studies showing toxicity, and so one needs to be aware of dosing as well. So um, we have detailed the appropriate therapeutic doses for each of the acid. Let's go into some of the more obvious uses. I mean, you know, the, the poster child is, is um, bodybuilding. What about other sports uses and, and, for instance, detox use by practitioners? Okay, so the posted child is bodybuilding. So what does bodybuilding mean? Amino acids are involved in production of growth hormones. A growth hormone, if you get a growth hormone injection, what you're getting is about 191 amino acids in an injection form, right? Mm. But the next poster child, which is really, really fashionable today, is particularly in, in the integrative medicine world, is the use of injection peptides. Have you heard of that? Yeah, with the sports yeah. issues, yeah. Yes. It's used in a sports arena, and it's literally, when basically it's an arbitrary measure. If we say there's 50 amino acids or less, we call them peptides, and if they're a chain of 50 amino acids and more, we call them proteins. But the, the um, study on peptides, uh, Dr. Molika, in his work on um, in the Pituitary Journal in 2010, on his work on effect of ghrelin, ghrelin, the peptide is called G- GHRP6. In 1995, he worked on uh, this particular hormone, it's a ghrelin hormone that's shown to stimulate um, growth hormone. And growth hormone is predominantly amino acids. So the peptides now originally used um, for bodybuilding and abused in that instance has now been shown to be very, very beneficial in the area of um, inflammation in cancer patients and so forth. So when we're looking at the amino acids in the line of detoxification, we require amino acids for all these pathways, glucuronidation, methylation, acetylation, sulfation, all of your detoxification pathways require specific amino acids. Taurine, glycine, methionine, these are the threonine, these are the amino acids that are needed for phase two liver detoxification. Another area, and we can expand on the area of gut function because it's amazing how you can stimulate digestion using histidine. You can um, uh, support if you you can support gut function um, through a number of ways. Perhaps looking into the use of um, specific amino acids for um, leaky gut for detoxification. We need we can typically see to uh, we need taurine and glycine to stimulate bile production, bile acid production. 
glycine and taurine actually inhibits the excitatory actions of the nervous system. So it allows for smoother peristaltic action and quicker transit time. Other amino acids like tryptophan and histidine, they act as really great, powerful neuroinhibitors. They stimulate the parasympathetic system to actually pump the blood to the intestines, and that stimulates the peristalsis. Remember, as, as, as tryptophan improves, your peristalsis improves. So does insulin improve. So insulin is a, a great driver for all of these amino acid use as well. Can I ask a question about um, histidine versus histamine or histamine? What's the conversion there? What What's the issues with allergy? I remember seeing histidine in, uh, you know, anti-allergic type formulations years ago, not seen very commonly here, but it did seem to have a different effect. It seemed to work. Yes. Histidine is actually required to support digestive capacity, and histidine is the amino acid precursor of histamine, which is a neurotransmitter. Mm. Histidine is also um, involved in the production of glutamine as well, which is the most abundant amino acid. So histidine is, um, is, is triggered, but histamine is the um, neurotransmitter that's released from mast cells upon activation. Your T cells, your B cells are activated to release histamine from the mast cells um, upon um, an allergenic response. But histidine, its precursor, is involved in stimulation of um, neurotransmission pathways, but also involved in um, digestive capacity. It's also involved in asthmatic conditions. So using histidine can be very beneficial for allergic type reactions. And histamine, as you probably well know, can be up or down regulated by elevations of histamine is pretty common these days um, and, and it's associated with a lot of neurological dysfunction ranging from depression to schizophrenia. Um, and the, the two markers or two enzymatic functions, one is HNMT, which is histamine n methyltransferase. It's a methylation. It's a methylation pathway. So histamine needs to be methylated into its metabolites or it could be driven by copper and vitamin C, which is through diamine oxidase. So if you've got a patient with a high level of histamine, it's really important to remove the histidine-containing foods and remove the histamine or stimulate the histamine um, metabolism as well. I wanted to go back to the bodybuilding peptides as well. I mean, there was a huge rucker raised in Australia where, uh, you know, coaches were using unapproved polypeptides. Um, I thought they were injecting them. Is that right? That is correct, and right. peptides are available through compounding pharmacists yeah. um, as an injectable, yes. And uh, so they have been used, um, there was obviously a Rolfus a while ago, mm. but that's been well regulated in Australia. Right. Um, and now the action of these peptides are, have been, well, a lot of, lot of published work has been along the lines of stimulating um, that inflammatory or supporting the inflammatory cascade. So it's now the use of peptides in cancer, in inflammatory conditions, in autoimmune diseases has now been very well published and is used um, therapeutically in Australia today. So we really need to 
um, upskill on that because I was way behind the eight ball. I was still like, it's illegal, it's bad and things like that. There are therapeutic roles and they work. Absolutely. And yes, it is illegal um, for the bodybuilding practices. I think it's done. It's very, very um, uh, well regulated in Australia, which is which is fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I think for any sports people looking at this, they, they need to go to asada.gov.au and look at that. Um, what about uh, detox, though? That's I mean, that's a classic use in the naturopathic world. The orthodox medicos would say, you know, that it's of no use whatsoever, and yet we see people getting better. But of course, there's these cautions. I remember um, a couple of patients were so sensitive; these chronic fatigue patients, and all they could take was glycine. How do you wend your way to find out which is the most appropriate, either single amino acid or combination of amino acids, to help a patient? Right, so when you're looking at a particular pathway, you can actually examine which pathway of the liver is not working effectively, okay? There are many, there's there's phase one pathway, which is driven by cytochrome P450, and then the phase two pathways are sulfation, glucuronidation, glycination. So glucuronidation is really involved in in, uh, your your hormone metabolism, your amine metabolism, or xenobiotics are, are, are being cleared, through um, these pathways, uh, your sulfation pathway is driven by the sulfur-containing amino acids like cysteine, cysteine, etc., to produce glutathione. Okay, so when detoxification patients who are super, super sensitive, they might not be, often you won't find patients taking amino acids on their own. They would take the amino acids in conjunction with possibly in a compound with um, herbs, liver detoxification herbs such as the meristocele or bucarium or dandelion together with the various vitamins that will stimulate the the utilization of those amino acids. So patients who are super, super sensitive, they might need to reduce their dosage to suit themselves because the dose dose, um, is quite variable Mm. of amino acids and this is why... Uh, it is great to look at the tables that are in the alchemy of amino acid books to actually identify what dosing would be ideal for right. patients like that. And obviously they can go from hundreds of milligrams to grams. Um, yeah. Do you ever find super-duper sensitive people where you've really got to be, you know, let's say under the under the 100 milligrams or is that just a drop in the ocean? Um People like Ben Lynch, Amy Asco, these are our gurus in methylation. They talk about, Amy Asco actually refers to um, a dosing at a milligram level, much wow. lower dosing. Wow. So again, it depends entirely on the constitution of the patient. Yep. But because proteins are part of our diet, they are an essential part of our diet, particularly our vegetarians, they would respond so well, the vegans would respond so well to um, amino acid supplementation. So dosing is important, but also amino acids do not appear in nature on its own. They appear synergistically with other amino acids. So therefore, it is ideal to actually look at a patient's amino acids through their testing mm. and then supplement in accordance with their own levels as well. Okay, so first thing there is when you talk about vegans, vegetarians, we've got to talk about the source of the amino acids. You know, the obvious, the assumption would be animal, but not so, correct? Yes, the source of amino acids can vary significantly. 
Yeah, amino acids are now derived from fermented brown rice. They derive from pea protein, etc. Now, when you're having amino acids that are derived, individual amino acids that are compounded individually for a patient, these are often derived from a plant source, and they are synthesized in the laboratory to produce a USB or a BP grade yeah. um, raw material. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's a lot more therapeutic applications covered in your book. Can we delve a little bit further into these? Sure. Um, I guess the easiest way to talk about some of these therapeutic applications, we know that neurotransmitters are produced. Its precursors are uh, amino acids. For example, tryptophan is activated to 5-hydroxytryptophan to produce serotonin. Phenylalanine and tyrosine are needed to produce dopamine and, and adrenaline and so forth. But one of the areas that is worth making a mention of is the concept of um, glutamate and glutamine. Mm. Would you like us to discuss that a little bit? Yes, yes, please. Look, you know, glutamine is the most abundant amino acid in our diet, right? It tends to rise and fall with the changes in demand for glucose production. Right? So when glucose elevation subsides, then glutamine surpasses all other amino acids and it includes alanine. It's a, alanine is a supplier of carbon for glucose um, synthesis. So glutamine actually contributes to the net ga- gain of glucose for energy. Right? Now, the way glutamine works, glutamine, remember, is a precursor to glutamate. Mm. So glutamate is your excitatory neurotransmitter, which then eventually produces GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So glutamine does a number of things. Glutamine fluxes its shift between uh, a number of avenues. One avenue is gluconeogenesis. This happens in the kidneys. Another avenue is glutamine is needed for glutathione synthesis. It's also needed for proline synthesis. So proline is proline, ornithine, are required for collagen um, synthesis. So in other words, that's involved in inflammatory responses. Uh, And then we've also got the GFAT, which is your glutamine fructose 6-phosphate aminotransferase pathway. So all of these pathways are involved in glutamine to glutamate production. And glutamate is actually formed by the transfer of amino groups from your aspartate, it comes from aspartate, alanine, and other amino acids mm. um, via your um, enzyme called aspartate transaminase. So all of your amino acids are either deaminated or transaminated to be inactivated or activated. And the idea behind this is to activate it to alpha-ketoglutarate, and we know that alpha-ketoglutarate is actually needed for energy production. Yes. So that's why we say that glutamate is actually a great brain regulator. It can be bad for you, it can be good for you. So glutamate, what glutamate does, like at the presynaptic cleft of the neuron, um, the glutamine is converted to glutamate, then it goes out and gets activated. It gets activated at these various receptors. Um, the major receptor is NMDA, which most of us have heard of, your NSLG aspartate. Can you see all of those are <laughs> amino acids? All your enzymes are actually amino acids. Yeah. And the other, the other um, uh, receptor is AMPA, and the other one is KA, which is kinase. These are the three receptors. 
Now, it's interesting. It's not only glutamate that is activated by NMDA, but D-serine and glycine is also activated by NMDA. Now, the body is so smart because it helps regulate. It's like, like a bit of a negative feedback system. If glutamate is too toxic to the body, then glutamate is reuptaken by the astrocytes. And uh. ammonia, it triggers the release of ammonia yeah. from the bloodstream to um, convert to glutamine. So the blood ammonia uptake then stimulates the formation again of glutamine by the glutamine synthase pathways. And these wonderful transporters, all amino acids like, like um, progesterone and testosterone and estrogens are transported by your um, sex hormone binding globulin yep. or albumin and all of those. These amino acids are transported by the FN1 and FN2 transporter systems. So they go ahead and transfer and transport that glutamine back into the presynaptic crest. So to regulate that glutamate-glutamine imbalance. So essentially, glutamate and ammonia uh, is involved. Ammonia from your bloodstream is, is, is recirculated to form more glutamine. So that's, that's so amazing how the, bo the body is able to do this because we know that glutamate is obviously your excitatory neurotransmitter. And it's involved, we also know that glutamate toxicity is associated with major neurological disorders, neurodegeneration, yeah. ALS and Huntington's and all those sorts of conditions. Yeah. So it's really handy to know that we can up and down regulate these pathways um, uh, efficiently in that regard. We know that there are drugs like glutamate blocking drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, which are basically NMDA blockers, um, and they are mamantine, dextromethorphan, that sort of drug. But then on a herbal perspective, we've got the likes of adenosine, which is really effective in helping to um, drive down excess glutamate as well. Now, I didn't know that dextromethorphan was a glutamate blocker. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this is a real... A call out for me, certainly, but for all our listeners, I think to to upskill about the pharmacological actions on um, amino acids. Are these yeah. covered in your book? Um, to a certain extent, some of them are covered in the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's that much information, so it's a matter of trying to figure out what what is most relevant, because the idea is to to really uh, uh, produce most practical and clinically relevant text so that a practitioner can take that material and turn it into a tailored compound mm. formulation, you know? So yeah, that's, yeah. that's essentially what we're aiming at achieving there. <laughs> when we're talking about um, cognition support as well, and you're talking about, um, you know, uh, serotonin, for instance, I think it's interesting that the ph normal pharmacological avenue to, to treat um, serotonin issues is by using a, a ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. But that really only looks at serotonin that is available in the synapse. It doesn't make any. That's right. You're not topping up the tank. <laughs> so amino acids are used to prop up the tank. That is correct, yes, as, as well as associated cofactors. And the cofactors are equally important because they are involved in the synthesis and the metabolism and the transamination and deamination of all your amino acids. 
For example, vitamin B6, tetrahydrobioxin, folic acid, absolutely essential minerals and vitamins to um, uh, to work with your L-tryptophan to convert that into 5-hydroxytryptophan and, and serotonin subsequently. You mentioned uh, NMDA receptors previously and, and uh, you know, the, the hyper-excitability of NMDA receptor, um, receptors can cause neurotoxicity and it seems to be that magnesium is the magic mineral there to, to recharge the pump, to pump out the calcium influx to to dampen that stimulation. How useful and how relevant do you find either just magnesium or do you use it with certain amino acids to help balance that uh, production? As I mentioned, amino acids are working really, really effectively with its appropriate cofactors. The cofactors most often, when I prescribe and compound an amino acid formulation, I generally recommend a magnesium with a B a generalized B complex formulation to support the activity of your amino acids. So amino acids don't work independently, vitamins don't work independently, they need each other. Mm. So it's ideal to use the combination of both the vitamins and minerals together with um, the amino acids. Glycine and amino and as well as magnesium would be probably top on the list to actually um, help uh, um, block your NMDA. And what about bone support? I, I, I was quite surprised to see that. I would never have thought of amino acid prescription for use with bone support. I would have thought about, you know, more minerals. Um, tell us about that. Okay, so bone, bone function is um, essentially... The use of calcium and magnesium, etc., and vitamin D and vitamin K and so forth. So we need anything, any strategy to increase the, the bone absorption. Now, the amino acids, one of the amino acids, um, your, some of the amino acids are hydroxylated. And typically you will see certain amino acids in urine versus in blood, hydroxyproline, hydroxylysine. These are, are involved in... Um, connective tissue, proline, ornithine, uh, these are amino acids that are actually um, involved in production of uh, collagen as well as connective tissue. So using a combination of something like proline, ornithine, lysine, loose and your branch chain amino acids like leucine, isoleucine, and valine, those are the three major um, uh, um, branch chain amino acids, could be really effective in stimulating not only growth hormone, but also bone production as well. So it's improving your bone um, calcification, okay? So um, using something like amino acids together with a collagen formulation uh, and calcium and magnesium would be an ideal blend to compound for somebody who has um, perhaps osteopenia or osteoporosis. Ornithine, tyrosine could be a really great um, example of a daytime blend mm. for stimulating growth hormone. Uh, whereas ornithine and tryptophan, because tryptophan is calming, it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, could be useful together with proline to be um, a good nighttime blend, as an example. There are lots and lots of recipes that I can give you, but that's the sort of thing that you would want to look into in terms of in terms of collagen, you want to stimulate the cross-linking of collagen. It's important to use 
ornithine, proline, and lysine. Those are the two, three major amino acids in conjunction with your minerals like calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, and collagen. So it, it's not just um, taking the amino acid per se, but there's also a, a variation here, a temporal variation, a diurnal sort of variation, circadian. If you are asking about amino acids that change through the uh, circadian rhythm, there is, I've, I've had a look at some of the studies on it, and it's the only ones that are considered to be well-researched are things like tryptophan, mm. um, as well as um, histidine. There seems to be a diurnal pattern there. Hmm. But the research is not conclusive. Yeah. And so I personally, because we're taking our foods three times a day and we're assuming we're taking some level of protein three times a day, I'm sure the amino acids would operate on a uh, based on a, a needs basis. Yeah. But whether they actually manufactured, synthesized, or metabolized in the diurnal pattern, I don't know that. Hmm. I, I don't think that happens, but I'm not sure about it. So celiac disease. Now, this one was interesting. This was, was it a high hydroxyproline? Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. So in, um, if, we, if we're seeing certain, certain markers in your test results will reveal um, different, uh, I guess, therapeutic roles in the body. We will find that elevations in hydroxyproline and hydroxylysine is associated with tissue uh, catabolism. In your celiac patients, you will typically see it's, uh, they, they can be hallmark markers for um, celiac disease, elevations in hydroxyproline and hydroxylysine. So there are markers like um, hydroxyproline, particularly the great hallmark for celiac disease. Um, hydroxyproline is also a marker of, you know, cell turnover. So it's, it's indicative of perhaps a leaky gut. Now, if you're looking at a patient who has maldigestion or dysbiosis or leaky gut, they would respond really well. You'll typically see elevations in hydroxyproline, um, but you will also... Um, find that that patient respond well to leucine, isoleucine, valine. These are a branch chain amino acids, as well as histidine to help with impaired protein digestion, as well as they will typically have a low level of tryptophan, phenylalanine, and tyrosine. Be aware, none of your amino acids will metabolize without a decent amount of hydrochloric acid. And as a result, mm. it's taking huge amounts of PPIs Lots of patients on proton pump inhibitors, they may be having the ideal diet. Their body is not able to break down those proteins and so that those amino acids become available to the body. So digestive capacity is so important. Always. It's really important to ensure that the digestive capacity is optimized so that the amino acids can be used. So we do find that high elevations in hydroxyproline is considered to be um, um, a hallmark uh, for your um, uh, IBD type patients. Right. So what about cardiac disease and, say, for instance, the use of arginine in production of nitric oxide? I've always been a little bit hesitant with arginine when it's not balanced with, with carnitine, but some people are quite happy to use arginine. Um, you know, quite heavily. What's your view on this and, and how do you measure it? 
Itunes is an interesting amino acid. It's so important. It, it's like the starting material from which um, it, which it produces really diverse actions. One of the major actions is really production of nitric oxide, and we know that nitric oxide is is required for cardiovascular dilation, blood supply, and so forth. Now, arginine is um, is countered by a, a really great um, marker, which we call ADMA. Today, ADMA is actually measured. It stands for asymmetric dimethylarginine. It is a marker of uh, identification of... Um, it acts as an inhibitor, endogenous inhibitor of angiogenesis. So arginine is a compound um, from which nitric oxide is formed, and ADMA, which is the marker that a doctor would measure, is the naturally occurring compound that actually does the opposite. It counters, that inhibits nitric oxide synthesis. So what ADMA does, typically if you see high levels of ADMA, then that patient is either undermethylated, um, purely because arginine is methylated to ADMA and methylation is required for ADMA production and ADMA then becomes the precursor to citrulline. Now let's just go back tracking because it's important to understand what arginine actually does. Arginine has such major roles. Its transporters perform a supply of amino acids to make proteins, right, for energy. Um, it is involved, arginine is involved in urea formation to get rid of uh, that excess ammonia. It's involved in um, the catabolism, to, so arginine is broken down to ornithine and proline for the production of um, amino acids, uh, your, your collagen. Okay, so arginine is involved in collagen production in an in, indirect in way. And then it's also involved in the synthesis of a creatine, creatine which is the substrate for energy storage in your muscles. And interestingly enough, um, it's involved in the upregulation of your polyamine formation in signaling uh, mechanisms for apoptosis. So arginine would be an interesting contraindication where, where we're looking at arginine in various uh, tumor growths. Right. You need to use arginine in, in, with caution in patients who have uh, or perhaps cancer patients. So arginine works amazingly well with ADMA. ADMA is your enzyme that you measure, high levels of ADMA, is involved in nerve damage, it's involved in cardiovascular issues, and it's all because of um, the effect on nitric oxide. So L-arginine actually stimulates that nitric oxide synthesis, and it overcomes that inhibitory effect of ADMA, so they counter each other. So if a patient has high ADMA levels, we will know that that patient is likely to have or have a propensity towards arteriosclerosis because it inhibits, ADMA inhibits nitric oxide synthesis. Mm. It inhibits the endothelial function and that will then stimulate arteriosclerosis. So therefore to drive down ADMA, we need to give the patient arginine. We need to use low-fat meals um, to help the synthesis um, and conversion of ADMA. Antioxidants are important. Uh, vitamin B6, B12, folic acid, all reduces ADMA. So it's important to actually use 
you know, if you've got persistent ADMA elevation, they can be managed with um, drugs like your ACE inhibitors, for example, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, and some of the natural estrogen replacement therapies. And exercise is one of the big ones that will yeah. drive down ADMA. So um, arginine is often, you will often find arginine in a formulation for cardiovascular um, support with magnesium and taurine, and it works predominantly on the nitric oxide pathway. Now, you and I have discussed the alchemy of the mind previously, and one of the topics that we spoke about was libido. How can amino acids help with libido? One of the major amino acids is um, your arginine because it stimulates nitric oxide pathway and it uh, supports vasodilation. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard of various commercial formulations called, uh, if I remember correctly, Dream Cream. It had some level of arginine to stimulate the what we call the puffy lip syndrome. <laughs> so that was, together with other dilators, that right. was a compound that was made. So arginine is, has, has a role there. Was that the one where the catchphrase was a little dabble, do you? I think, I think that's the one. <laughs> I think yes. so, right, yes, okay. Yes. It creates the tingling feeling. Yes. Okay, so, so therefore, sources, the sorts of amino acids that have been um, implicated in sex and libido um, for orgasms, um, these are all work done by my peers, um, and so I can talk about some of these things based on their studies. Um, amino acids like histidine, arginine, lysine, these are amino acids that may be useful in uh, supporting orgasms. Um, to prevent uh, premature ejaculation, one could use methionine together with your calcium and magnesium. To increase sperm count, uh, one could use arginine and methionine. There's a number of these recipes out and about, which we can, I'm happy to share and fill in the book. Mm. So general, sort of like a general formula mm. um, for good sexual health might contain histidine, arginine, lysine, methionine, canoalanine, tyrosine, and carnitine. Canoalanine and tyrosine, the precursors of dopamine. And you know that sex starts in the brain, not not in the in the gonads. So um, you know you need that motivation, and that's that's where phenylalanine and tyrosine comes in. Arginine is involved in your nitric oxide support. Methionine is involved in your methylation support. So there's a number of avenues by which these amino acids can actually support um, your um, sexual health. <laughs> yeah, along with a candlelit dinner and some connection. Absolutely, the chemistry. We definitely need the old chemistry. With regards to amino acid testing, what sort of testing is available and what's the evidence to back that up? So there are two major ways one can measure amino acids. One is a fasting blood and fasting plasma, and this can be done through a blood draw or blood spot. Um, in uh, this is probably what we call the gold standard yeah. um, because it has the greatest validation and has many scientific studies that provide um, generally a higher um, level of reliability for showing chronic stresses that shift, uh, you know, based on the patient's uh, amino acid demands. However, there are certain amino acids that cannot be measured in blood that have to be measured in urine. 
And I find today um, the urine testing, I use a lot of that purely because it does not require blood draw mm. and it, they are totally reliable. Now, urine testing is really identifying the metabolic disorders, due, perhaps due to genetic polymorphisms or micronutrient deficiencies or even toxicant abnormalities. Mm -hmm. So um, amino acids, there are exceptions. For example, the... Um, Taurine is a, is a great exception. Uh, it generally tends to be higher in whole blood uh, rather than in urine uh, due to its concentrations. In, it sort of hangs around in the erythrocytes. Mm. So as a result of that, you often find taurine high in, in blood rather than in, in yeah. urine. Yeah. And then you've got your markers such as methylhistidine, 1 or 3 methylhistidine, hydroxyproline, these are, um, and beta alanine, these are all markers that can only be measured in urine, they cannot be measured in, in blood. Ah, okay. So the, the test that orthodoxy poo-poos is actually indicated at least in certain amino acids. Most of the amino acids can be measured both in plasma and urine, but mm. they are definitely exceptions. The urine can measure a lot more yeah. than in the blood, yes. Yeah. Hydroxylysine, hydroxycholine example, they released from collagen of connective tissue and bone, and because they are released from the connective tissue and the bone, they are actually measured, they cannot be measured in blood, uh, they are measured in urine. So to your book, Alchemy of Amino Acids, how is it set out and how is it designed to help practitioners institute uh, amino acid prescription? The alchemy of amino acids was started or was formulated with the view of providing um, all the material a practitioner would need to understand the nuts and bolts of every amino acid. You know, um, this, I, I must share this because the Materia Medica is the most boring part of the book. Um, the book is covers how to use your amino acids. What, are, what does it mean to have a low and high level of amino acids? Uh, what's the dosage? What's the therapeutic action of each of these amino acids? What are the side effects and contraindications of each of these amino acids? But this is all contained in what a, a chapter called the Materia Medica. In my day as, as a pharmacy student, we did a subject called pharmacognosy, and it's no longer done today. And pharmacol, we were blindfolded in this exam and we needed to dip our fingers into various powders like Nuxvom or, or various herbal powders. And we used that or even pharmaceuticals and we, we identified the alkaloids and the terpenoids and the components thereof. And one of these amino acids that I remember really clearly is glycine because it's so lovely sweet. It's a really sweet amino acid. So this is a science that has been lost. But fortunately, we have all of this material documented. So the book, in, in actual fact, is aimed specifically at giving the practitioner or the reader all the information that they need, but most importantly, how to compound uh, the various recipes, how to read a test result. Okay, it's very important to be able to see the patterns of the test results. Absolutely. And then once we've done that, how to compound an individual. So I have supplied the the book is an, is available as an ebook with lots and lots of uh, tables, access to heaps of tables of 
easy to access table so that you can you don't have to read the whole script in order to understand the value of each of the amino acids. And the it is um, associated with or it's matched up linked with about twenty plus hours of webinar material on alchemy of amino acids. So we go and delve right deeper if a patient, if a practitioner is really keen to understand the amino acids. Um, we'll, I'll give them the algorithms to be able to compound the amino acid formulation for the patient oh, as well. brilliant. Um, what about further learning? For those people that want to see what evidence there is out there, where did you learn this stuff from? Oh, my, my peers are just amazing. There's some really, my gurus in amino acids are um, the works of Dr. Erdman in his book called Amino Revolution. Dr. Braverman in his uh, Healing Nutrients Within, um, Dr. Richard Lord and Dr. Braley, uh, Alexander Braley, in their book called um, Lab Evalu- Laboratory Evaluations in Integrative and Functional Medicine. That's brilliant. I've so got that one. these are my, to- my they my gurus, mm. and if you really want to learn a lot more about it, these are the the um, texts that you can um, go out and read some more. The idea behind Alchemy of the Mind is grabbing all that information from my gurus and putting it together in a clinically practical format so that the practitioner can take this material, look at a test result, understand which recipes would be best for which condition without testing or with testing, how do I compound? What exactly, what do I do to compound my formulation for the patient? That's brilliant stuff. Benita, thank you so much for taking us through. I mean, this is so in-depth. Obviously, there's a lot more. But um, if our listeners want to get in contact with Vanita, you can get in contact with her via vanitadahia.com. Um, we'll certainly put these details up on the FX Medicine website for you to access and uh, certainly along with some of the research that we've spoken about today. Vanita, you're awesome. Thank you very much for talking about alchemy of the amino acids today on FX Medicine. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks so much for the opportunity. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the book Alchemy of the Mind by Vanita Dahia.